Please rise for the reading of God's Word. There will be two texts today. Our first reading is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Hear now God's Word. In Him, that is, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. To continue our series on foundations. Foundations foundational to the Christian Church, as well as to Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. There are two sacraments given to the Church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The first is a sacrament whereby each of us enter into covenant with God and with the Church, and are thereby set apart from the world. We are made holy. We are made to be God's people. This is his mark upon us. The second is the sustaining sacrament whereby we maintain our intimate relationship with God and with his people and are perpetually nourished in the Lord and renewed in our covenant with God. The wedding ring and the marriage bed are sacramental and illustrate the idea. They're not the sacraments of the church, but they are sacramental. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which means an oath of allegiance or an obligation. The sacraments are outward signs of inward truths or what ought to be true. Baptism indicates that we have been washed, made clean set apart unto God. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the intimate communion and peace between the bride, that is Christ, I mean the bride, which is the church, and the groom, which is Christ. Therefore, in most Christian churches, the font or the baptistry and the table, along with the pulpit, are the key pieces of furniture or geography in the church building. This is where the action of the liturgy takes place. Now, of course, there is much controversy through the centuries surrounding the two sacraments, and that's because they're important. But I, and I won't begin to resolve those controversies in a single sermon. In fact, that's not the objective of this sermon. Christians have disagreed, sometimes vehemently, over these subjects, and that's because our symbols 
are more important than most of us think they are. For even those who say that these things are only symbols, therefore it is necessary to assert and lay before you the foundational nature of these sacraments so that they might be received and admired. We need a high view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I maintain the deepest respect for my fellow Christians who take different views from me on this subject. We must be patient, kind, and respectful toward one another. That's not to say that these subjects are unimportant or that there are not serious consequences to what we believe. Ideas always have consequences. And so... um, I mean, uh, excuse me. Uh, in my book on baptism, I quoted the Puritan Richard Baxter, who said this: "The servants of God, that would be us, all of us, do mind the matter of religion more seriously than others do, and therefore their differences are made observable to the world. They cannot make light of the smallest truth of God, and this may be." some occasion of their difference. Whereas the ungodly differ not about religion because they have heartily no religion to differ about, it is, uh, it is, is this a unity and peace to be desired? I had rather have the discord of the saints than the concord of the wicked. Again, the nature of a 35-minute sermon severely limits how much can be said about the vast topic of the subjects, but the nature of this, as we think about our foundations, is to remember, to recall, to think again, to renew and refresh our thoughts about why these things are essential, why they're important. And so I want you to think of this sermon as a reminder of the importance of this, of these sacraments, and I also want to encourage you to further study. This, like all other doctrinal issues, will only be answered correctly if and only if sound interpretive principles are applied. And we dealt with this a few weeks ago. And let me remind you that the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, in its unity and continuity, provide the authoritative basis for interpreting Scripture. This is the only safe approach to lead us to sound answers. So let me just begin very simply with the statements from the Westminster Larger Catechism on our subjects for today. First, question 62, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion with one another, and to distinguish them from those who are without. Question 165, what is baptism? Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. That's what your baptism means. What is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, His death is showed forth. And they that worthily communicate feed upon His body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace, have their union and communion with Him confirmed, testify and renew their thankfulness and engagement to God, and their mutual love and fellowship, each with, with other, as members of the same mystical body. There's a lot going on in baptism and the Lord's Supper. In both sacraments, words combine with visible, physical elements to communicate God's powerful work on our behalf. As in the marriage ceremony, in the moment that the minister pronounces the couple man and wife, those are just words, right? I now pronounce you man, they're not married yet, and wife, right then. Something happened. God took ordinary words. And then something extraordinary. Everything changes. It's a mystery. So too in baptism and the receiving of communion, ordinary words and things become extraordinary. Extraordinary. Of course, people can make a mockery of marriage and make the wedding ring meaningless and turn the vows into perjury. So too unbelieving hearts may turn the sacraments into testimonies against them rather than the blessings that they are intended to be. Let's look at baptism. Circumcision and baptism are initiatory signs and seals that God chose to indicate his covenant relationship with his people. Again, think when you think covenant... I think marriage is one of the best images we have that is just common to us. We've all been to weddings. We know what a marriage covenant is. It's this agreement between these two people that's binding, that has both blessings and curses. In other words, if you enter into this relationship and you do what you're promising to do and you love one another, then this is going to be a great blessing, the greatest blessing of all. But if you don't, if you... If you don't follow through with those promises, if you break your promises, if you break the covenant, it's going to turn out that this is misery. It's cursed. It's awful. Circumcision was adopted under the older covenants, and baptism is applied under the new covenant. While the form is changed, indicating an an expansion of the covenant of grace... The meaning of the signs has remained essentially the same. Both circumcision and baptism signify that people are born unclean 
and that they stand in need of of being cleansed, of salvation by grace. Both covenant signs set apart. That is, they make people ceremonially holy, uh, uh, whoever the recipients are. Just as believers and their households in the Old Testament church receive God's covenant sign and seal of circumcision, so too believers and their children in the new covenant church are to receive the covenant sign of baptism. There has been no scripturally authorized change in this critical point. Believer, uh, believer, the believer and their households were and are included. The new covenant did not become more restrictive, but rather more expansive and more glorious. What is a sign and a seal? We often make difficult what is simple. Signs and seals are no mystery. They go hand in hand. Circumcision and baptism are signs and seals in the same basic way, again, as wedding rings are signs and seals. As signs, they signify or mean something. As seals, they confirm the binding nature of the covenant. We all understand what it means when the bride and groom say to one another, With this ring I be wed. We know that the gold bands are not actually performing something all by themselves. But what they represent, the promise, the commitment, the token, the symbol, this is what these rings now, right in this moment, come to represent is my promise to you, to love you forever, to be faithful to you forever. That is the binding nature of this. And so we place the ring upon one another's finger for all to see, for them to see. For them to be reminded. For the world to know. A sign and a seal. We all understand this. Circumcision and baptism are signs and seals. Also much like the signature signature and the wax seal of a king's signet ring. The signet ring seals or confirms the genuineness of a document, much like our modern-day notary seal on a legal document. Our signature and notary seal, or the king's signature and wax seal, make an agreement or a document binding and official. An unsigned or an unsealed document is not binding and not valid. Therefore, you know, if you hadn't, if you ever borrowed money on a house and you go there and there's like 30 signatures you give before you can get out of there. Because everybody understands the power of that signature. In fact, if you skip the page, they'll call you back. Uh, they'll, you'll get a phone call the next day because they went back through there. We need you to drop by. Uh, we, we somehow missed page 14 in the uh, loan agreement. We need you to come by and sign that one too. Therefore, the words sign and seal may be used together for emphasis. Circumcision and baptism are God's signs in our flesh, which seal or confirm the promise that he's made to us. Pierre Marcel elaborates on this point. 
He says seals are distinct from signs in that they, are, they not only remind us of invisible things. Remember, we believe all things visible and invisible, right? Visible, invisible things, there are many invisible things that are real. You say, but I can't see them. Well, that's oftentimes why we employ, em, employ physical things to help us remember them or imagine them or whatever, but they're still real. You believe in love, right? Don't you like to get tokens of love? Flowers? Cards? Birthday cakes? We have all kinds of ways of expressing love, but love is invisible. So he says that these remind us of invisible things, but also authenticate these things to our religious consciousness by making them more certain and sure to us. During our daily practical life, we constantly make use of seals, tokens for, uh, for combating fraud, falsehood, and counterfeits. It is, in fact, necessary to distinguish the true from the false. What is authentic from what is not, the original from the counterfeit. A trademark serves to authenticate the genuineness and guarantee the source and quality of a product. Hallmarks declare the standard of alloy, the exact value, and the nationality of gold or silver articles. On weights and measures, they testify to the accuracy of the inscription by reference to the scientifically determined original which they represent. Stamps, seals, and signatures guarantee the perfect authenticity of an important document, and so on. Scripture attests to the usage of seals when there is a concern to prove that something is really authentic and when it is of importance to guarantee it against all falsification. Our baptism text this morning, in Him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So in Christ, which is the central point of what it means to be a Christian, there is a new and better kind of circumcision. In the Old Covenant shadow, there was a putting off of a small piece of physical flesh, But in baptism, which is the new and more glorious mode, there is an entry into the community of God's people. And when that happens, there is a putting off of an entire way of life. It means dying to the old world and coming alive in the new one. We're united to Christ in both his death and his resurrection. And this is why baptism is so important and so powerful. Because it represents the difference between death and life. It is also why the denial of that baptism, like the denial of wedding vows, is so, so serious. To blow off our baptism is to blow off the God who laid claim to us, to whom we have made covenant vows. Baptism is God's statement, not ours. Baptism is God's sign and seal. It is the very picture of His grace. He washes us. 
He unites us to Christ. He does what we cannot do for ourselves. Baptism is a big deal. The Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How often should we partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, how often do we need to remember that the body and blood of Jesus was given to us? How often do we need to proclaim his death? Well, that's why we start every new week at the Lord's table. Doing things is another way of saying things. Sometimes it's more powerful than words. Our eating and drinking is the proclaiming of his death to the world. And there is nothing that the world needs to hear more about than that. Now it is, of course, possible to have form without substance, and that is hypocritical. But with form and substance, when those come together, it is really powerful. So again, we can come here, we can eat bread, we can drink wine, and we can go home. And we can be cold and dead and just go through the motions, swallow and chew. And that God hates that. But when we eat and when we drink this bread and this wine with a believing heart, and we pray and we look to God to take those little things these ordinary things, and to turn them into something extraordinary in us and for us, he does. Now it is, of course, again, possible to not do this properly, but when we meet together around the Lord's table, there is much being said by us and by God. This table is no ordinary table. It is the table of communion. There has, been, there has always been a close link between the church's understanding of the nature of the sacrament and the attention she gives to it. Use tends to follow its perceived significance. If it doesn't mean much, then we would expect to see it used very little. And when the communion table is neglected, then I would argue that the people of God are malnourished. What a man thinks of the Lord's table is a clear indication of what he will think of Christ, of the church, and of theology itself. R.C. Sproul said, The light of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is in eclipse. The the shadows of postmodern relativism have covered the table. For the Lord's Supper to be restored to the spiritual life of the church 
there must be an awakening to its meaning, significance, and power. John Calvin said, God has received us once for all into his family to hold us not only as servants but as sons. Thereafter, to fulfill the duties of a most excellent father concerned for his offspring, he undertakes also to nourish us throughout the course of our life. And not content with this alone, he is willed by giving his pledge to assure us of this continuing liberality. To this end, therefore, he has, through the hand of his only begotten Son, given his church another sacrament, that is, a spiritual banquet wherein Christ attests himself to be the life-giving bread upon which our souls feed unto true and blessed immortality. The signs are bread and wine, which represent for us the invisible food we receive from the flesh and blood of Christ. Now Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ, that refreshed by partaking of Him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we shall have reached our heavenly immortality. I'll remind you that the Lord's table, this arch table, this big table, is an archetype of our family tables. The table at your house. Or perhaps we should say that our family tables should be an imitation or a reflection of the Lord's table. Remember, liturgy is life. What we do here means something, or it should mean something. It sends a message. It teaches lessons. And so we come to the Lord's table each Lord's day to be fed by the Father who meets our needs above and beyond all that we could ask or think. He has given us life. He sustains that life. He protects that life. The table is the very image of fatherhood, the essence of which is love. We began each week gathered around the table as children to be instructed and nourished just before we're sent out the doors to go live. And so, too, we go to our homes and gather around our smaller tables to be instructed and nourished, and from there we fan out to live and to love. The liturgy is practice for life. The church family is an outpost of the kingdom of God. God's got churches all over the place, all over the world. He has outposts of his kingdom. We're just one of them. Our families, your families, are outposts of the church. The two are always tied together. The Lord's table has many images by which we see the depth and the simplicity of God's work. We see the seriousness of our sin and the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. The grace of God in giving His Son the peace that is made between us and Him so that we can sit out at a table and fellowship and eat. The power of the resurrection, the declaration of His death and all of its implications. The hope of His return and the communion of the saints. It is also a simple picture of the Gospel. So simple that a child can understand it. They might not understand the sermon. 
or a lot of other things. But some of the very smallest children here pay attention when the bread and the wine start to be passed. It's an appeal to all the senses. I I mean no disrespect. I've said this before, but it's kind of the scratch and sniff of the gospel. It's just that simple and that beautiful and that easy. It's the image of the intimacy of the groom and his bride, not unlike the marriage bed. It is the family table where we receive food and nourishment and joy and where we share and where we serve and where we are served. It is the place of gratitude and thanksgiving. It's all of this and much more. It is both light and deep. It is simple and profound. The table is one of those geographic centers of the church and the home. The table is so profound that it encompasses every dimension of our lives and therefore a variety of descriptions and expressions are appropriate. Every trip to the table should be exciting, enlightening, and renewing, but they don't all have to be exactly the same. When God first created the world, He gave creation to Adam as food. He said, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. Adam was invited to the great banquet of creation so that he could eat and drink and rejoice in his God. All creation was a means of for enjoying fellowship with the Creator. That is the final destiny of creation as well. In the renewed renewed heavens and earth of the consummation, we will enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb, the supper of the kingdom forever. Many will come, the Scripture says, from the east and the west, to recline with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus in the kingdom. And we're already enjoying that feast now. In this old creation, we are celebrating the feast of the new creation. With the bread and the wine of the old world, we are anticipating the feast of the resurrection world. Even now in these decaying bodies, we feed on the body and blood of Jesus. The Lord's table points to the consummation of all things. Every week, the world of the future becomes present. At this meal, the fruits of the earth, the grain, and the new wine and oil are made into food, the food of communion. The bread and the wine of this table point to the destiny of all created things. It anticipates the time that the creation eagerly waits for. The time when creation will be set free of its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. From here, we are sent out to our homes to repeat these lessons, to live them. Connecting our worship to the way we live with one another. There at our little tables, we apply what we learn at the great table of the Lord. 
If we each just came in and picked up some bread and wine as it suited us and then consumed it privately, we would not be discerning the Lord's body and we would not be joining in communion. We'd be missing the point, which we're pretty good at, right? The table is the meeting place where we remember who we are and what God's done for us. I want to, let me commend you. You got up and you came today. A lot of people didn't. You came, why? Because it's important. It's easy to forget that sometimes because we do, most of you do this every week. But it's so important. In fact, doing it every week is important. For it to just be the rhythm of your life to start every new week remembering these things. You're going to need it, right? How many weeks of not doing that would it take for you to be in a big ditch or over a cliff? wouldn't take me long at all. So come back here. I anticipate coming here even. Get myself ready before God and pray. And think about these things and come so that when we come to the table, I'm not just tossing back a piece of bread and sipping on a little teeny few drops of wine. As one more little thing to do, but rather thinking this is powerful. God takes this little bitty thing, this little morsel of bread, and these few drops of wine, and he does something tremendous if I'm paying attention, if I'm looking to him. We remember that we're not our own, but that we belong to Christ and are members of one another. We remember that we are dependent upon God and that he is our provider. And so we enter into fellowship with God as he serves and also with one another as we share this meal. We are nourished and renewed at the table. And we leave this table, therefore, ready to live in the context of all these lessons we've mentioned and a whole bunch more. I just scratched the surface. You think about it very much. You just think about your own table at home. Say you're having a, a family meal. There's a lot going on there, right? Somebody had to go out and earn money or plant a garden or do some kind of labor in order to provide that food. They had to sacrifice and give something, and somebody had to prepare it, cook it, and present it, and do that with love because love is about sacrifice. And the table had to be set, and all the things that go with that. And then here, here comes... The call to the family. Gather at the table. Why? Because we love each other. Yeah, well, we just had a fight in the bedroom five minutes ago between brother and sister. Yeah, but now we're going to make peace. Now we're going to all sit down and remember that we're in this together. And we sometimes don't like each other, but we still love each other. And then we have to learn to do what God says to do with sin and Give it to him and be forgiven and cleansed and start all over again. And that's why we're here today, to start all over again. Let's pray. It is a joyful and pleasant thing to be thankful. The soul that blesses shall be made fat. When we have eaten and are full, then we shall bless the Lord our God for the good things which he has given us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again unto a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, who is indeed the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort. We will give wholehearted thanks to the Lord, secretly, with all the faithful, and publicly in the congregation. You, O Father, give us true bread from heaven, for your Son has come down from the heavens and gives life to the world. For he who eats this bread will live forever. We will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make us dwell in safety. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English Baptist pastor, tells of a Welsh minister who spoke to a younger minister about his sermon after hearing it. It was a very poor sermon, he told the young man. Will you tell me why you think it's a poor sermon, came the response. Because, said the Welsh minister, there was no Christ in it. Well, said the young man, Christ was not in the text. We're not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what's in the text. The exchange continued. Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old divine And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis metropolis of of the Scriptures that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis, Christ. And he said, I have never yet found a text that had not a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I'll make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get to my master, for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a Savior, a Savior of Christ in it. Well now, we have structured our liturgy, our order of worship, the way we have for a reason. Because every Sunday, at the end of every sermon we wind up here at the table. We wind up back at Christ. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now in your order of worship. It says setting the table. And the whole idea of inserting that is to make the point that the sermon is not disconnected from this. That every sermon has to do, one way or the other, of bringing us back to remembering Christ, that He has done it for us and we cannot do it for ourselves. And so we come to this table every week, at the end of every sermon, this pulpit, think of it as the seat at the head of the table. And I, as a minister representing Christ, like a father at the head of the table, who gets up and delivers a word before everyone is about to eat. We've all gathered here at the table. You've been sitting at the table ever since you began the worship service and we're about to eat. And everything has been pointing to this so that we don't ever forget what it's all about. It's always and forever about Him and about our need for Him and about the fact that we can't do it ourselves and that He's done everything and more. 
before us. And therefore, all we have left is what? Thanksgiving. I want to invite you just to be happy right now. Because God has done it all for you. You don't have to do anything else. He just gave it to you. Just one big gift to you. So now, we're going to remember that. Because I forget that. How about you? I forget every week. I've been doing this most of my life, and I still forget. And I have to come back and remember that. So I can go live and give thanks. And how do we give thanks? If we love him, we keep his commandments. We go home and we love our families and we love our neighbors. And we show people the love of God. That's why we come and remember. And now, O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking. Increase our faith. Establish our hope. Kindle our love. You have given grace to the humble, and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, as we desire that men should do unto us. Let us do first unto them. Help us to be disciplined people for your glory and our good. Bless now our time of feast and fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares for you. Amen.